Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 18th, 2017. It's a Thursday. Thursday is the listener call show. This is where you pick up your phone and you mash the numbers 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You get a voice message service and you leave me a, a message and... Uh, The way to do this is ask your question or make your point immediately, then give me the details. You'll be much more likely to get on the air. The other way you can leave me a message the same way, though, is to use a speak pipe. Get on over to the survivalpodcast.com. You'll see a speak pipe button there. You can hit that and you can leave me your message as long as you got a microphone on your device. Of course, with your smartphone, that would work really well. So those of you that maybe uh, don't have the best cell phone coverage but have Wi-Fi, maybe you use a speak pipe button. On that, I have cleaned out the speak pipe. If you've left me a message by speak pipe and have not heard it on the air yet, that means that uh, it didn't get received or it didn't get selected or whatever. And I've pretty much screened all of the calls that have come in. I, that doesn't mean I've played them all, but the stuff you're hearing today has cleaned out. Everything's been screened and selected, so it's a good time to make calls for next week. Again, 866-65-THINK or go to the speak pipe through the survivalpodcast.com website. What are we going to talk about today? Well, here we go. I got a lot of stuff. I'm just going to read the bullet points to you. I'm not going to explain any of it at all because some of it's confusing. And I like that. That makes you excited about hearing what the hell I'm talking about. So, building worms up on your property. Why I'm not a fan of, quote unquote, be your own banker. A.A. Forringer reports on building his brand the TSP way. Growing mulberry in high altitudes. The ins and outs of starting your own seeds. Of cannabis and harbor freight. It will make sense, I promise. Practicing sneaky permaculture and preventing fish die off in a farm pond. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bobwell's Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bobwell's is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey, folks. When I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 2006 because the episode is 2006. This is a year that most of us should have pretty decent recall of, of things that were going on. Uh, we have for our three news stories today, two from Alex Shrugged, one from Southpaw Ben, the spinach E. coli outbreak, human genome, genome pro, pro, project hits a major milestone, and the U.K. foils yet another airline bombing plot. Notable births, none that we can find this year, yet anyway. Notable deaths this year, Gerald Ford, age 93, coronary artery disease, President of the United States, he had selected the University of Michigan fight song Hail to the Conquering Heroes for his funeral procession. Ford is a guy that kind of got a bad rap, man, in, in a lot of ways. He was put in a terrible position, and 
I think he did the best he could, and he wasn't as much a bumbler as he appeared to be, but it just didn't work out for him. Abu Mazub Alzari uh, died at age 39 from injuries from two laser-guided bombs. Goodbye. Saddam Hussein, age 69, execution by hanging. He had requested being shot because he thought it was more dignified. Request denied, and bye-bye. Slobodan Milosevic, age 64, of a heart attack. President of Yugoslavia was on trial for crimes against humanity and genocide. Again, bye-bye. Also lost this year with a little bit more of um, wishing they were still around. Milton Friedman, Gene Kapatrick, and Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, who proved that even the animals that are probably not the ones that are going to kill you can be the ones that are going to kill you, unfortunately. I like Steve Irwin. This year in film, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, uh, The Da Vinci Code, Professor Hunts for the Holy Grail, and the interpretation of ancient documents is total BS but fun, says Alex Shrugged. I'll tell you what, Dan Brown, I've actually read all his books. I've read every book. Well, I haven't read the repackaged versions of some of his books. It's like, write another book, Dan, if you want me to buy another book. But I, I think two of his books that are actually... Some of his better stuff are not from the whole uh, Robert Langdon, you know, Da Vinci Code series. Uh, they are a book called Digital Fortress and another book called Deception Point. Both of these have their own unique set of characters. They're not directly related to each other. You see very much the Dan Brown model and formula in them. Deception Point was actually his first novel written back in 98. It may be the most creative one that he has done. He, he, he um, Actually, I'm sorry, Digital Fortress is the one I'm talking about. Maybe the most creative one he's done. And a lot of forward-looking stuff, when we think about cyber warfare and things like that, State comes out looking a little better than it should in, in, in uh, Digital Fortress. But, man, if you read Digital Fortress today, you think the guy had a crystal ball looking forward. Uh, Deception Point is another one that's really out there from everything else he's done. If you've liked the Da Vinci Code stuff, you might appreciate these two books. I have links to them in the show notes, just an aside there. Um, also this year in film, Cars, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, and V for Vendetta. Uh, this year in TV, Heroes, Friday Night Lights, and Disney's Hannah Montana. Yeah. Uh, this year in music, Madonna's Confessions Tour breaks all records. Tower Records assets are auctioned off with iTunes selling its billionth song this year. The reason is obvious. Um, when You Think by Tim McGraw and Taylor Swift. She's 17. When You Think Tim McGraw, I Hope You Think of Me. Uh, White and Nerdy, Weird Al Yankovic hits the Billboard Top 10. Funny sound and sounds good too, says Alex Shrug. This year in video games, new Super Mario Brothers for Nintendo DS. Gears of War for the Xbox 360, Resistance, Fall of Man for the PlayStation, and Madden NFL 07. In other news, the U.S. housing bubble, over a million foreclosures are filed this year in 2006. A stock market meltdown ensues. General Motors loses $8.6 billion. Golly, I know I left it here somewhere, says Alex Shrugged. Insurance company AIG apologizes for deceptive business practices. It makes a $1.64 billion settlement with the federal government. Next year, that same federal government will bail out AIG to the tune of $180 billion because AIG insured subprime mortgages without sufficient collateral. Google buys YouTube for $1.65 billion. And as I've said before, one of the reasons Google did that is they had too much cash on hand, and the government was looking at turning their stock into a mutual fund. And uh, it turned out to be a pretty damn good buy over the years. And the Blu-ray disc is released in the United States. Let's take a look 
at Human Genome Project hits a major milestone, because I have an interesting thought on that. Despite the draft of the HGP being published in 2000, the project keeps sequencing and completing the genome until 2003. In 2006, the last chromosome is published in Nature magazine, officially ending the project. The project was funded by the Department of Energy and the National Institutes of Health and was expected to take about 15 years. However, computer and analysis improvements between 1990 and 2003 allowed the project to finish early, unlike most government projects. My take by Southpaw Ben. In order not to have one's personal entire genome sequenced and used for study, the project used small pieces of many different people's genetic materials to carry out. The 2006 was a major milestone as it was the last chromosome was published. However, the project is still analyzing the exact makeup on a smaller level to better understand the human genome, with the goal being to allow it to be used to find specific genetic markers for certain diseases, allowing preventative measures to be taken at much earlier times than otherwise would be possible. Current technology makes analyzing any individual's entire genome for diagnostic purposes cost prohibitive. However, this is the long-term goal for many in the field. And this is another look at where the future is leading. And the reason I selected it today is it gives me an opportunity to tell you about something that I think you might find interesting. Uh, a new National Geographic show that's not really about genetics. It's about artificial intelligence and technology as a whole. It's called Year Million. And I watched the first episode last night. Now, Year Million is not the Year Million. Year Million is a crossover point in technology where the you know when you get there the concepts of what we think of today become foreign. There's such a leap in technology that you know you're talking about the singularity where humans can actually download their consciousness into a machine and continue to live as an artificial life form. That's the kind of thing you're talking about with year million, though is that necessary to be the year million phenomenon? Not necessarily. We don't really know what it is yet. But the, uh, the show was interesting, and it kind of paints two possible futures. One is pretty rosy, and one is pretty dark. You know, one is that we work with machines, and machines work with us, and you know, AI continues to evolve to, you know, beyond data from Star Trek, and uh, we see it as, AI sees its role as helping us, because we've designed it to do that, and the other is a lot more, you know, Terminator, Rise of the Machines, ah, death. Uh, but done with really good production value and with some sanity check. It's not completely out there, and it's not promising all this stuff in the next 20 years. And, and I thought you'd, you know, like to take a look at it. When we look at genetics, there's other things to think about with consequences of fooling around. So what if you could look at a person's genetic makeup and say this person is probably going to get lung cancer in their life whether they smoke or not and just switch off that gene so they didn't get lung cancer? Seems like a good thing and the right thing to do, but what if you could also switch off genes that would uh, make the person predisposed to be overweight? That also seems like a good thing because there would be less health care costs. But what if we, through this, were able to extend life expectancy to 120, 130 years, which many people think we can go further? 
But not just extend life expectancy itself. Just take a whole bunch of people who would be dead by 50 or 60 or 30 or 40 from various diseases and cancers and things like that and have them live to standard life expectancies of, you know, they say it's 72, 76, 78, depending on who you check, get forms for. But honestly today, people generally live about somewhere between 80 and 90 years unless something kills them. You know, when we look at people that just get old and just die of old age, if you want to call it that, it's, you know, around the 90-year mark for a lot of people and older for many now. So what happens if everybody's just getting there to the population of the planet? And how topsy-turvy do we get then with producers versus consumers? And I'm not putting down old people for being consumers. I'll be one one day myself, so will all of you. But you know what I'm saying. People get to an age where they retire. And you couple that with the age of the rise of the machines where there's less and less jobs anyway. Indeed, we have an economic shift coming that we don't even know how we're going to handle it yet. Policymakers won't even honestly look at it yet. Most people are blind to it. Many people have their fingers in their ears, their eyes closed, and they're going la, 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 la about it. But it's coming. And all of these things will be factors that come into it. I think you might enjoy the the, uh, the series Year One, Year Million. Again, it's on Nat Geo. Those of you with uh, most cable providers in addition all today have you know DVR capabilities, and I recommend that you set your DVR to video it so you can fast forward through the commercials and use technology to your advantage so that you're not sold yet another drug that you don't need to ask your doctor about, which seems to be the primary commercials on things like Nat Geo and Fox News for some reason. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies, You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. All right, so before we get into your questions today, I actually have a few things to tell you about that I think you might find interesting of stuff that I've put out recently. I put out a blog post this morning with three new videos on it, and the one that I think a lot of you guys might have an interest in that maybe don't normally have a huge interest in the YouTube channel because maybe you know the gardening, the aquaponics, the ducks, all that stuff is not really your thing. You're more of a gun guy. I got a quick little video I put out yesterday. I finally got in the mail my new barrel from Sig Sauer. Um, about two years ago, in a barter deal, I acquired a Sig 239 in 40 Smith & Wesson. I don't hate the 40 Smith & Wesson. It's just not my cup of tea. It just isn't. However, I have found this SIG 239 to just be a wonderful gun. I love the way it functions. I love the way it fires. It points like a 1911, which is you know my go-to gun. It, it, it carries incredibly comfortably. It fits the hand incredibly comfortably. Uh, it's, it, it's a joy to shoot for follow-up. I can see why some people love the Sig Sauer, especially the, the 239 uh, variant, the more compact variant uh, than the military-issued one. I can see why some people don't like it, too. 
Um, I shoot it beautifully. I can tell it's the kind of gun that other people won't. It, there'll be people that feel about it like I feel about Glocks. That's nice for you, but not for me. But I like it. But I didn't like the 40 Smith & Wesson. So my buddy David had introduced me to this dude named Toby. And Toby said, first thing he said when I told him I had one, he goes, get a, a, two, uh, a .357 SIG barrel for it. And I went, yeah, duh, why didn't I think of that? Now, the .357 SIG barrel, or I'm sorry, SIG round, is basically based on the 40 Smith & Wesson neck down the uh, .357 caliber. Uh, it has ballistics approaching the .357 Magnum, well over the 38 Special Plus P, but not quite the capabilities of the .357 Magnum. But, you know, it's academic at that point. It, it really is. It's, it's, it's up in that class of, of, of shooting. And I love the .357 Magnum. I love .35 caliber. Um, and I love shooting hard cast heavy bullets, which you can shoot in the 357 SIG 180 grain hard cast lead. So I took a look at this. This was months ago, and these barrels were like 130, 140 bucks, and they were everywhere. At least I thought they were. I'm not sure if they were or not now because they're still priced at like Midway USA and Brunel's and Mid South Shooting Supply and all that. Well, I finally decided like a couple weeks ago, dude, get off your ass and get this done. I mean, all you gotta do is buy the barrel and drop it in. So I go to all these typical sites to get it from, and none are available. They all say discontinued. Oh, shit. So I go over to Sig Sauer, and they have it available for like 180 bucks. So I'm like, and it said, quantity available, one. One. I'm like, is that the last one? Well, if it is, I'm getting it. So I ordered it. It came. Anyway, upshot, when I, when I checked out um, the site the other day, when I got the barrel, they had seven in inventory. So I don't know if they're fully discontinued or whatever. Um, but it's 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 you know it's a great thing to be able to do, and a lot of you Glock owners have that same option. You have a Glock's in 40 Smith and Wesson. You can just you take the slide off, pull the barrel out, drop the other barrel, and slide it back in. And because the 40 and the 357 Sig have the same parent case, the magazines work. You don't even need new magazines for it. So it's just something to check out. Check out the YouTube channel if you haven't yet. Remember, if you if you subscribe to my channel on YouTube, once you do that, there's like a little bell right under where you hit subscribe. If you click that, you can select then to be notified whenever I put new videos out. Otherwise, they just show up in your YouTube feed. If you do that whenever I put out a new video, whatever email you have on, a, on your YouTube account, you get an email saying, you know, Survival Podcast has a new video out. So consider doing that for me if you are a subscriber. And if you're not a subscriber, consider becoming one. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, first call for today's show. This one is on worms. Yes, a call on worms. Caller, we'll go ahead and listen to you now. Hey, Jack. My question is, can you stock night crawlers in your yard? Details. When I was growing up, we had a couple of locations where after a big rain, we would go out after dark and collect night crawlers, which would just be laying on top of the ground, and we'd use them as fishing bait. So after collecting them, we'd keep them in ice cream buckets in an old garage refrigerator, and as long as you fed them used coffee grounds every week or so, you'd have a supply of worms for fishing that would last a month or more. This was an awesome resource, and we turned these worms into a large supply of fish for the freezer. I've noticed that in my own yard now, there are no nightcrawlers to speak of. So the question is, can you stock nightcrawlers on a property? Say I went out and bought 10 or 20 dozen nightcrawlers or more and released them in my yard. Would they stay there and just begin reproducing? Or... Do I need to do something to my yard to make it more attractive to nightcrawlers, and then they just fill up on their own? I'd love your input, Jack. Thanks for your work. 
Okay, this one is kind of one of those that's like, well, yes and yes and but. Okay, so if you start dumping lots of worms on your property, will they? Will that help the population? Will they start breeding and making more worms and things like that? The answer is yes. If you improve the soil on your property so that it is higher in organic matter, it has better tilth, and worms can actually get into it, and it stays moist in at least certain areas, will worms show up on their own? Yes, and you can definitely do both. Here's the thing. If you have no worms on your property and you start dumping worms on your property, it probably probably will not do much good. Um, the thing we call a night crawler here in, in America or I should say the United States, uh, none of them are actually originally endemic to the United States. Um, they're all from uh, Europe, Africa, and Canada. So some of you will see Canadian night crawlers. They may or may not actually be of, of Canadian uh, uh, roots, but uh, mostly throughout a lot of the United States, what we look at as a large earthworm that we call uh, night crawlers of European uh, origin. And you can imagine that just from things being brought back and forth that they eventually got here, uh, soil and stuff like that being taken for plants being brought back and forth on ships early, early, early back. Uh, same thing with Africa. So uh, when, you, when you dig a hole in Texas and you find European lineage night crawlers, they got there somehow, and it probably wasn't somebody bringing them by and dumping them out of a cup. Uh, they are a creature that simply just almost seems to show up by spontaneous generation, but that's not what it is. There's a myriad of ways that they uh, propagate the, themselves, uh, including in, uh, in feces of birds is one way. Um, it, I, I've been amazed looking at some people's aquaponics system, and uh, you, you dig into the gravel and you find big, giant night crawlers, and you go, did you put these in there? And like, no. I never, or they, remember, they put red wigglers in, so they will just show up. What do they need? They need soil that's you know got tilth to it. it hard, compacted soil is not going to work. When I was a kid in Pennsylvania, same thing with you. I, every time it rained really hard, I'd go outside with a flashlight with a red lens and catch night crawlers. One of the old school coffee cans, you know. And then we had some uh, basically two-sided coolers. Uh, fairly large ones, probably about a gallon, that we kept a good uh, mix in for them. And we fed them a food called uh, Magic Worm Food. I'm not even sure if that's still available. It was like this yellow powder. And, boy, whatever it was about that, it made them really almost like a little piece of leather. Man, they were tough, hard worms and healthy worms when they ate that stuff. And uh, we kept them in the refrigerator, and we used them for fishing. There were some spots on my grandparents' property that, for one reason or another, were heavily compacted, and I just never even bothered looking there. You just never found any worms there. So if you dig around on your property in various spots and you find no worms, then you've got soil fertility issues. When I moved here to, to Nine Mile Farm, uh, we did a lot of digging and a lot of installations and what have you, and I, I never saw a worm. And now I find worms almost every time I dig. I don't find them like I did in Pennsylvania where you dig the dirt over and there's like a hundred of them in there. You know, but we're working on that. We definitely, in the swale systems and in the, the beds we've done in the sheet mulching, and that's probably one of your biggest things you can do to start creating worm habitat is to start sheet mulching. Uh, a layer of compost, you know, a layer of cardboard is a great thing to start out with. And then maybe a layer of, uh, of compost and then a layer of straw, and then a layer of wood mulch. And keep that area irrigated, and I promise you 
that by the next season, when you dig down in there, you're going to find worms, unless you live in a place with no worms. And that would be a good place, once you get the cardboard you know, kind of uh, starting to decompose, to stock your worms if you want to do that. It certainly wouldn't hurt anything. And then as you improve other areas of your property with a good you know, nucleus of worms on the property, you'll get a lot of self-propagation. If one of the best places, though, to stock worms, and I think everybody should do it, is in your gardens. If you're building raised beds, in-the-ground beds, whatever, you're actually improving the soil anyway. Um, going down to Walmart or the bait shop or whatever and buying you know, a dozen or 18 or two dozen, whatever they sell a box of them, I think Walmart does like 18, um, and dumping one in each bed, that's just cheap t way to improve the quality of that. Uh, my advice is to to seed those worms in the evening uh, when the you know when the, right after a good watering when it's not soaking you don't ever want to soak wet your, your garden anyway where it's like you know standing water but where it's nice and moist everything's you know copacetic for the worms and dump them in there if you're going to do this and you're going to get your worms from Walmart I don't hate Walmart I just don't but when you get your worms from Walmart I really recommend that you open the container I recommend this anywhere but especially Walmart and kind of shake it around make sure they're healthy and in good shape um Walmart is a box store. They get worms in and they treat them like spray paint. They have a little refrigerator for them to go in, but they just stick them in there. They don't feed them. They don't rotate them. They don't take care of them. They just throw them in there. And I've gotten worms from Walmart that look like the best bait shop worms you've ever seen in your life. And I've gone in there and opened the lid, and they're they're not melted or anything. And you know, If you've ever seen a melted worm, it's pretty nasty. But they're barely alive. They're barely moving. And I just won't buy them. And sometimes by just going through a few boxes, you can find a couple that are good. So I just thought I'd throw that in there for you. Anyway, uh, definitely you can stock them. Definitely that makes sense. But if you don't give them the right environment, uh, you're just basically killing worms. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Hey, Jack. It's Ben. I've got two kind of questions for you. Um, number one is a question about a uh, segment on the Vin Armani show. Uh, there was a segment talking about um, a guy's podcast called Cashflow Ninja uh, through Valhalla Wealth Financial or something along those lines. And what he does is he makes money via his insurance or something like that. Um, it's episode 16 on the Vinar Money Show. I can't find the exact spot. Uh, the next question that I've got is um, – how you might do Airbnb and if that's something you'd ever look into if you wanted to get into real estate investing. Um, just looking for your general thoughts on both of those. I'm not able to financially understand what MC is talking about in the Cash Flow Ninja scheme and or how it helps with how everything works right now. Anyways, uh Please uh, let me know your thoughts. I greatly appreciate them. Uh, that's pretty much it. Bye. Okay, so um, I'm not going to have a lot of good things to say about this, and I want to first – I've actually become pretty good friends with Vin Armani, and I, I have no idea what context anything he would say saying about this was in there. So I don't know if it's good or bad or what have you. Um, this MC guy um, – He's actually applied to be on my show twice, and you've yet to hear him, and you probably won't. That should tell you some things. So I know that he's reaching out to, like, everybody in the space and trying to get exposure, 
and he may have reached out to Ben, and Ben may have just talked a little bit about what he's doing. I, I remember, six, I think you said episode 16, uh, it's Josie Wales is, was on that one, and uh, I remember listening to that, and I don't remember, he, you know, I might have missed it. I'm sure it would have been in the, the first hour of his show. I don't remember hearing anything about it. Um, but let me explain to you the basics of it, and then I'll explain to you why I don't, I don't like it. And it isn't that it doesn't work. It's that it doesn't work good, in my opinion, as a return on your money. And I know there are some members of this audience that have continuously reached out to me and tried me to convince me that this is, I just don't understand it. I understand it perfectly, and that's why I don't like it. The concept of this, it's, 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 it's been called infinite banking. It's called be your own banker. It's, it's, it's been called a lot. In the end, it's nothing but whole life, uh, which is the most expensive way to ensure your life possible. And what you do with a, when, you, when you bank on this plan is you buy very expensive, uh, high face value life insurance. Let's say a million dollar policy or half million dollar policy. And the, uh, the rate you'll pay for it compared to something like, you know, 30 year term, which actually is pretty good for a lot of people, or a product I have called Term to 90. If I make it to 90 at that point, whatever, I, you know, I've got my funeral paid for, and you're going to be cremating me anyway, and you know whatever I have left you get, but you don't need life insurance at that point is the way I look at it. Um, you're going to pay a lot more. Let me just put it that way. You're going to pay a hell of a lot more for whole life. And generally, when you're sold into this concept, you end up buying more life insurance than you need uh, from a standpoint of whole life, or you, you just really shouldn't be buying whole life. Because you're buying a very high face value, your payment on your life insurance is quite high. But they tell you not to worry about it because it's all going into cash value of your account, which is not true. A portion of it is. But since you're paying such a high amount, the cash value will tend to build fairly quickly. Uh, you know, Over a few years, you'll build up a significant amount of cash value. What is cash value? Cash value is money that you could just, if you say, I don't want this shit anymore, I want to cancel my policy, they'll give you the cash. Or you can borrow a portion of it, and then you can pay it back with an interest rate of like 6%. Okay, um, But there's still a premium on the outlying value. So the interest rate that you're paying yourself is not really all going to yourself. So the way this would work, let's say we've now saved up uh, $100,000 worth of cash value and we want to finance some sort of a deal and we need uh, $20,000 to finance that deal. Well, what we do then is we borrow the $20,000 from ourselves, supposedly. We're really borrowing from the insurance company and we pay it back over a set schedule plus 6%. Plus, we're still paying our premium on the policy itself. And by the time we're done paying it back, our, our, our continued premium has built our underlying cash value even higher. Some of that interest has built our cash value even higher instead of going to the bank. And, of course, we've repaid the $20,000. So it's available to borrow again, and we can roll it into other deals. And if we keep doing this long enough, we can end up with a million dollars worth of cash value. We can be buying cash houses for cash and quickly using the cash flow out of the house to repay. That's the whole story. Um, let me say bullshit on this being a smart use of your money. About the only upside to this is if you die during this, less whatever you've borrowed out, the face value of your insurance policy pays to your beneficiary. But guess what? So does term life insurance. Okay? Much, much cheaper product. And if we just took the money that we were 
you know, putting into this expensive insurance product that's the most overpriced life insurance in the world, if we just took the difference and invested it, frankly, if we just put the, took the difference and put it into freaking savings accounts, we'd come out ahead because then we couldn't wouldn't have to borrow. We could just spend it and say, instead of having that $100,000 here, I've got it in real estate equity over here. And I have no debt back to it. I only have the debt on the part of the property that I financed. By the way, any of the interest on that, Uh, financing is then tax deductible. So I just don't like this because I think you're tying your money into a product that's overpriced and unnecessary for the goal, which is building a sufficient reserve of capital so that you can invest at other places. And, and it's, it's a very clever way that they've put it together, and it does work with air, big, giant-ass air quotes. It's not that it won't work. It's that... You're paying more for your own money than you have to, and you're paying more for your insurance than you have to at the same time. Because you're not creating, they're telling you you're creating your own bank. No, you're, you're overpaying to create an asset that you can borrow against without any kind of bad consequences. Because if you can't pay it back, well, you can't pay it back, and then you just end up with your policy in default and then you can cash out the you know I mean you're not going to you're not going to have your home foreclosed over it or something like that it's a bad idea and I think people like this 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 podcaster guy have tried to make out like you can become some kind of super filthy rich you know overnight success with this um, I don't like the angle the guy's coming from I don't like the way the marketing spin is on his site I don't like the idea and then I like the guy even less that's why his request to be on my show was met with absolutely no response at all just completely ignored him I think he's tied in with people like Dollar Vigilante, uh, and I think they're tied in with Activist Post, which is who Vin's tied in with. So I think there's this kind of networking thing going on there where everybody's trying to give each other a little bit of exposure. I'm all for giving good people exposure, whether they're part of my immediate network or not. I am not for exposing my listeners to an idea that I find is faulty. If you want to know how it works, I just told you. But you got it from me with no bullshit, no spin, and I don't care who you are that does this, nothing inaccurate. This is exactly what you're selling if you're selling this. And if you want to sell it and somebody wants to buy it, I don't want the state to get in the way. I don't want to bash you over the head for doing it, but I won't endorse it, okay? I won't endorse it. I won't do anything that would imply my endorsement of this because, again, if you just went out and bought the same amount of insurance in quality term life and took the balance and just started throwing it in a laddered CDs, you'd come out ahead. You really would. If you, if you have a longer term plan and you were throwing it into Roth IRAs and you can withdraw the money from the Roth IRA that you've deposited penalty free after five years and only are, are subject to some sort of penalty or tax on the gains you'd be building actual retirement in a tax-free a, a tax environment and still have access within five years to the principal underlying it. And while I'm not saying to do a Roth IRA, it's a hell of a lot better of a vehicle than whole life insurance. I'll ask John Pugliano to take a listen to this and give his opinion on it. However, it might just be he sends me an email back and go, yeah, you got it covered, bro. We'll see. Anyway... Just my thoughts on this. Let's go ahead and take another one. This one from uh, AA4Ringer. Uh, tell us what's going on in your life, man. 
Hey, Jack, this is A.A. Foringer, author of America's Big Game and We Need a Monster. I'd like to thank you for all your encouragement through the years. I just made 150 bucks for 900 words submitted to a travel magazine. Uh, I also have three science fiction books out, and a lot of it I can trace back to the encouragement you gave years ago. So thanks a lot, and keep up the great work. I mean, obviously, there's not a lot for me to add to that. I just when I when I hear from you guys like this that are out there successfully building brands and specifically personal brands, um, I like to share it with the audience because I think what it does is people look at something like Survival Podcast and what I've done with it and say, well, that's that's great for Jack. But the more people you see do it, the more you realize it's it, they're not special. They just worked really hard and figured out what worked for them. Um, I I could have gone into a different um, niche than this and probably not been anywhere near as effective and as, as successful. I might have found another niche that I was maybe even more successful with, but I doubt it because this one's so broad and it, it plays to my strengths. And it plays to my strengths as a professional speaker. That's what I did. I mean, sales and marketing is being a professional speaker. So I had 20 years of that when I started you know, this. And I, and I, and I was, I liked that. I didn't like what I had to do with it, but I liked getting in front of a room and explaining something to people and watching the light bulb switch on in their head. They've been doing, I was in cable testing for God's sake. Do you know how boring that is? But I would get up in front of rooms and guys have been in the business for 10 years and have been testing cable and just getting a pass on the tester and getting a fail and knowing how to fix it, but didn't really understand what we were testing for and why. It was just some bullshit magic that was designed to keep the customer happy or something like that. And there is some bullshit magic in cable testing, I'll tell you that. But there's practical applications that are actually testing whether or not you'll be able to have a network function the way you want to on the infrastructure. And, and explaining something that boring and seeing people go, oh, I get it now. Crosstalk is like you know being in a stadium and the background noise. Oh, I get it now. Attenuation, the further away you are. like Stuff like that. Like I, I dug being able to teach people like that. So when I found this, I knew I had found the area of my life I was passionate about, the medium of audio, and, 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 and made that work. Well, this guy's a writer. So, so he, he didn't try to be a podcaster if he's a writer. He went out and, and dug in to the subject matter, the things he cared about, and used that talent. And we've had people you know, in this community that became writers, that didn't know how to write. Glenn Tate is a perfect example. He was a moderator on the forum. You know, he, he, he did an incredible job coming from nowhere um, with the 299 Day series. But the first time I interviewed him, I said, well, how did you get into writing? He said, Jack, I had to look at other books and see, like, how do you format your writing, like, when somebody's speaking and you're quoting them versus where there's, like, uh, an, an anonymous narration type thing going on. And I had to learn the format through other books. I didn't know how to write. So... That means you can teach yourself skills. That means you can anchor on the skills that you have. But it's following your passion, and it's hard work and determination. Um, in some ways, it's keeping your head down and your ass up. You know What I mean by that is if you have like a ditch to dig, and you look, and that ditch is like got to be 100 feet long. It seems like forever. But if you keep your head down, your ass is you know, kind of up in that situation. And you just keep digging. You don't really worry about how far you have to go. You just follow the line so you don't dig a wonky ditch. All of a sudden, you look behind you, and there's a hell of a lot more ditch behind you than there is place to dig ahead of you. And it's, it's, it's that kind of thinking 
that builds success in this world today. Finding that niche, anchoring down on it, really believing in what you're doing, and working yourself you know, as hard as you possibly can without losing yourself in it that makes you successful. So good on you, man. And I've got a link to this website in today's show notes if you want to check it out. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Ranger Josh here coming to you from Southern California, Fraser Park to be Pacific. That's in the Los Padres National Forest. We're at 6,000 feet here, and I'm wondering if mulberry would grow and fruit well up here. Also looking for some other fruit tree recommendations or edible perennials um, new to living at elevation and would appreciate any help. Thank you so much. Take care. So my instinct is, based on your climate, and I looked up Fraser Park, California, and found that you're from zone 7B to 8A inside the boundaries of the park itself, which is my best guess of where you are. Uh, the, the coldest region around you is um, like 6, I think. Uh, so Mulberry will have no problem with that temperature. As far as the altitude, I'm not really familiar with a lot of growing Mulberry at high altitude in our climate. Um, mulberry at high altitude uh, in the tropics is done actually quite a bit and uh, considered a excellent forage crop for livestock. So it should work out really well uh, from from that standpoint because while you're not tropics, you're, you're you're not you know alpine. I wouldn't call you an alpine climate. You're you're not in the the ski skiing part of North, Northern Cali or something like that. And so it should be fine. Other you know perennials that would grow well there. Um, you probably have a very mild zone eight climate. Um, so. Uh, a lot of the stuff that would be generally considered alpine might be worth looking at, um, like honeyberry. Uh, it will probably do a hell of a lot better for you than for me, uh, if you have the right soil for it, acidity-wise anyway, because it's kind of like blueberry. It likes more acidic soils. Um, I, I can't really see much of anything that is a deciduous uh, fruit producer that wouldn't have a pretty good shot where you're at. And I think it's all about figuring out you know, what's going to work for you and what you want to grow. I know California mountains, uh, where, where a lot of Stark brothers did their development and finding of new apple varieties. So apple will probably do pretty well for you. Uh, you might want to check out the Kramaterhof, Sepp Holzer's place, and some of the stuff that he's doing there, because that's a much more uh, true alpine climate. If it will make it there, it'll probably make it where you are, unless it needs colder weather. Um, there's just a, you know, I don't really think you're as limited as you think you are. I think this is your limitation. You're probably dealing with a situation where you're really dry, and you might not have the best soils. So it's it's going to be about building soils and, and doing things either with drip irrigation or some sort of smart, effective irrigation to keep your, you know, your soils from drying out. And otherwise, I think that anything in the USDA zone that you're in, uh, you know, start checking out catalogs like Rain Tree Nursery and Bob Wells' website and things like that, and, and you should be okay. Look what grows around you. Um, it, it's probably the case that even though you're a relatively mild USDA climate, your growing season's a little shorter and you have frosts later in the year. So take that into consideration. Later fruiting varieties of the of the species that you're looking for that have you know, shorter growing season requirements. But, I mean, I'm just thinking a home run for you would be something like Antonovka apple. 
That just seems like a really great place to go from there. Um, goji berry would probably do fantastic. You probably can do sea berry. So those are some things that I would look into, but I wouldn't overthink the altitude. What you got to look at is solar aspect, how much sun you're going to get, the quality of the soil and building that soil quality up and making sure that you're getting enough sun because you're probably in a, it's probably a heavily pine forested area with a lot of shade. So, and how much soil do you have? Like mulberry might be a really good option because you probably have really rocky soils and relatively shallow soils. Well, mulberry is a very aggressive rooter and it roots at relatively shallow levels. It doesn't have huge tap roots. It's not like a serviceberry or a pecan or something like that wants to do a deep dive down in. Uh, so it's very good at spreading out and putting out massive, you know, extended root structures uh, similar to the, the redwoods that grow in California. Not the same, but similar in that root structure. So hopefully that helps you out. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Mark calling from your favorite state of New Jersey. My question is, how do I ensure the most amount of success when starting seeds? The details are this. Uh, I planted a... I put a bunch of seeds into a uh, little seed starting trays this year, and uh, a lot of them didn't make it. Um, some of them it took a long time to sprout, and some of them I had to reseed, and others would sprout, and then they wound up dying a week or two later. Um, I have a feeling that some of them I watered too much, which I've heard you talk about a number, a number of times with too much watering will uh, be detrimental. Uh, I was wondering if there's any other tips that you can give, um, such as uh, you know, what types of seeds need to be, if any, need to be soaked overnight or any other, uh, any other tips like that would be great. Thank you, Jack, for all you do. I'll give you some general tips, but I'm actually going to refer you to an episode that I did this year, episode 1392 on seed starting. And, and I, would, I, would, I think the biggest problem that people have, in addition to overwatering, which is a huge problem with people starting their seeds, uh, overwatering, underwatering where the, the stuff actually dries out. You don't want things completely dry at any point, especially during the germination stages of your seed while it's initially putting roots down, getting up its first leaves, and then its first true leaves. You really don't want it to be dried out, but you don't want it to be over wet. But the biggest problem is usually light and temperature. Uh, the, these are your two things. And when you overwater, then you get into dampening off and you get into mold issues and things like that. So let's kind of solve each of these uh, piece by piece. First, I know I've talked about these a lot, And, uh, but I also know a lot of you have bought them, and I've heard no complaints. The Kingbow 45-watt LED grow lights, the square 11 by 11, you know, full-spectrum grow lights, those things are fantastic. I've got some stuff that started on my bookshelf behind me right here. I've got just a basic uh, aluminum, small, you know, kind of a small aluminum baking pan with nine plants in it right now with one of those lights over it, and they're doing fantastic. Uh, it's, it's actually some aquatic plants, so I'm watering those heavily, but um, they are really about ready to go out. And I'm ready to you know, put another nine new plants under there. Um, so you know, just adding good grow lights alone will help you a lot with your seed starting. The other thing is temperature, and the lights help with that, but if we also now go to using an indoor grow tent, and I have links to all this stuff in the episode I mentioned and in this episode too. Uh, Giantex uh, indoor grow tent, it's like 60 bucks. 
and that and a Sterilite four-rack shelf and, you know, four of these lights, and you can make more seedlings than you ever know what to do with. And you don't need to go that far right away. You know, you can use uh, reflective foam board insulation from someplace like Lowe's or Home Depot and build yourself a little box, basically, with these lights inside it, and you can just put them on the ground. There's a lot of different ways that you can do this and having some reflections so that bounces around. Please, when you're using, I, 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 I say this sometimes, and other times I forget to say it, when you're using LED full-spectrum grow lights, either use protective glasses and, or, and additionally, don't look directly into the lights. Um, basically, you can do some serious damage to your eyesight looking straight into these lights. Even for a couple seconds, it probably won't do permanent damage, but it'll, whack, it'll wig your eyes out. Okay, So you don't look into them. The one I have behind me, I have the light angled backwards so it doesn't angle out and bother me or Charlie when he's sleeping on the ground here. But um, those two steps alone. Now, if you're going to use a grow tent, you may want to add a fan to keep circulation going through there. But a grow tent indoors with grow lights, you're going to have lots of warmth. If you're not going to do a grow tent, one of the things you may want to do is provide some supplemental heat in addition to the grow lights, especially to get a very fast germination and a very fast establishment of the plant. And something like um, just a, a, a heating pad on low um, with your, your planter set on top of that can do that for you, or you can actually get you know plant heating pads. Um, I've used the heating pads that, uh, that you get with, uh, like for using reptile, for, for reptiles. Another way I've done seedlings that's worked really well, if you have an incubator, uh, I have a hovabator, uh, the old school incubator made out of styrofoam, and uh, I put my seedlings in there from time to time, and I'll set the temperature to like 85, 88 degrees, and then you know you water. It's a perfectly humid environment. It's not going to dry out, and it's then as soon as they, they get a good, you know, because they don't get a lot of light in there. So as soon as they germinate and they're getting those those first exposed leaves coming up, they come out of there and go under grow lights. Um, you can use, you know, a good sunny window if you actually have one. You can, you know, use a greenhouse if you have one. But I think the biggest problem that people tend to have that are trying to start seeds indoors is lack of light. And just because you think you have light in your window doesn't mean you do. First of all, you may have windows that are blocking the majority of the UV light that the plant needs. So even though a lot of light comes in, they're not getting the light that they need. It's being filtered out. Or you might think you got a lot of light there, but you really don't. You really don't. And a classic sign that you don't have enough light is your plants are really tall and skinny, and eventually they fall over. That, that's, and that's what I've seen most. You want your plants to be robust little beasts. You, know, you want them stout and stocky, not tall and lanky. Um, with the exception, maybe tomatoes. Because tomatoes, you get them tall and lanky, and then you bury them so only a couple inches sticks out of the ground. But uh, personally, I've never put a bushy seedling into the ground and not had it do well for me. So I think that's the, 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 the kind of the short answer. But again, the episode that was like, I cover all of this in it, 1932 on seed starting. And the grow lights, the, 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 the plastic six-packs that I tend to use, and the grow tent, uh, and the Sterilite shelf that I'm recommending to build your own kind of seed starting platform here are all in today's show notes. And you don't have to use any of those. But they're just to give you an idea, um, you can use any kind of shelving you want. You can use any kind of a grow tent you want. You can, again, you can just simply using the foam board insulation that has the aluminum side to the inside, you can basically tape together uh, like a three-sided box and suspend some lights inside there and not even close the front 
And that'll give you a lot more of a, of a stable environment for your seedlings. Put them right on the ground. And the nice thing about that is you can untape that, use it somewhere else, and, or use it again, or put it away. But the grow tents are pretty affordable, and uh, they're probably the best way to go. But again, if you use a closed-up grow tent, you probably want to use some kind of a fan uh, as well so you don't get too much of a humid environment in there. Anyway, hope that helps. Again, the episode to check out in 1932, I think I did that in January, is linked in the show notes. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Matt in Missouri. So um, your comment about what medicine could there possibly be that could handle certain symptoms? Well, you know, the thing is is that horticulturists, which we're going to call them horticulturists, uh, have gotten so proficient at custom breeding that particular medicine that you can get it for, uh, for, for pain relief and it doesn't even get you high. But it takes pain away. Uh, in Missouri, we're only, uh, allowed to have, uh, distilled derivatives for, um, epilepsy and some other things. Uh, second thing, Harbor Freight. Yeah, it's one of those places where you got to know what you're buying and what are you using it for and what frequency are you going to use it. For example, their 100-amp wire-feed gas-shielded welder, uh, 100 bucks with a coupon, worth the buy, welded together a fuel still, and stainless with it. Um, stainless aircraft cable, wrecking chains, winches, all of those things from Harbor Freight are pretty good deals. Uh, your basic hand tools, hammers, screwdrivers, mallets, a lot of that stuff. Punches and chisels, I agree. It's not a, uh, a forged steel. It's not a high, high quality steel. Um, so just a couple of things that I wanted to say, you know, their, their, uh, quarter inch aircraft cable, I pulled down oak trees with that and a 4.3 liter Chevy. So, you know, it, it, just consider what you're going to use it for, how often you're going to use it, and if you don't think that it's going to take it, then you know, don't buy it. All right. So this call takes the cake for two subjects that are the most unrelated ever, ever. When I talked about this, you might be like, is he going to talk about eating special brownies and going to Harbor Freight and buying too much cheap stuff? No. Um, so I, I did want to actually talk a little bit about the, the cannabis issue here and my recent facetious comments when we've talked about opiate addiction, heroin addiction, and the relation between heroin addiction to opiate addiction because the pharmaceutical industry put two bogus studies out in the 80s that said that opiates were not addictive if they were taken for actual pain. Um, and I've made facetious comments like if there only was a drug that could, you know, handle these pain situations, this anxiety issues, this lack of ability to sleep and, and all of these different things that people deal with without the nasty side effects, without overdose deaths, etc. And I, I didn't, I said, I've done that two or three times in the past couple of weeks and I've not said it's cannabis, but of course I expected the most of you would know that I'm talking about cannabis and the insane war against cannabis. But he, th this guy brings up something that's legitimate, okay? Um, and I don't think people actually know or believe this if they haven't looked into it. There are strains of cannabis that if you just need to be able to get to sleep at night because you have PTSD and you can't sleep because you can't switch your mind off, that a few hits and you just are sedated and you're relaxed and you just go to sleep. And you're not high out of your gourd on it. It's just very sedative. 
there is cannabis that allows people, much like only with less negative side effects, uh, ADDH med, to be more attentive and not high out of their gourd. And there's stuff now that'll get you high out of your gourd with one or two puffs where you're just wasted. It's all over the map, but the breeding has taken on a level of sophistication that is a direct correlation to the oppressiveness of the state. And we can learn everything that we need to know about why you know the get-you-high, straight-up get-you-high dope of cannabis today is so much stronger than it was, let's say, in the 70s and 80s when you guys, most of you guys and I, were teenagers and maybe partook a little bit you know, of some stuff that a friend scored or something like that. So, so back then, there was brand, some brand around some of the pot and all, everybody, oh, I got Jamaican or some shit like that, you know, and it was usually bullshit. You got it from some guy named Craig that grew it in his closet or whatever. But in general, you smoked what you could get, and um, the war on drugs was not fully raging yet. Reagan hadn't totally kicked things up and handed them over to Bush Sr., And as that began to happen more and more, and it became more and more difficult and more and more risky for people to grow and transport and deal in pot, what people started doing was, well, let's make the pot stronger since we don't get in much trouble for less than an ounce or less than a half ounce so that we can, we can pack a bigger buzz into a smaller package and therefore reduce our liability when we're in transport or holding mode. So the state created the stronger pot. Just like, and we can learn the same lesson from Prohibition. Do you know the word that was almost never used before the, the, the Prohibition of Alcohol in America? One word. And it's not drunk. There was plenty of drunk people. It's the word cocktail. You, 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 in, in 1910, you didn't go into a bar and say, I'd like a, a, a whiskey and soda. If you drank whiskey, you drank whiskey, which is pretty self-limiting if you've ever drank whiskey. You don't, you don't guzzle up unless you're just trying to kill your liver. Like, whiskey's pretty self-limiting. To me, it is anyway. I know some of you guys are stupid and do dumb things. Tequila is self-limiting. All these things are more of a sipping drinker. You take a shot here and a shot there. You don't steadily drink whiskey all afternoon long until you start mixing it with soda or fruit juice or something like that, and then you can Well, how did this happen? Well, the United States government decided to wage war, a bunch of busybody freaking assholes, and outlaw alcohol. So what happened was immediately, overnight, the organized crime uh, in America decided this is a money-making opportunity. Like This is a gift to us. And at the same time, everybody that knew how to make wine or beer or brew up a little bathtub gin said... Hey, we can make some money on this, too. So there was an organized crime network to distribute it, but there was plenty of supply. I mean, there was more alcohol flowing during the peak of Prohibition than was before it. And the thing is, it didn't go away when Prohibition ended. It was already part of the culture now, and now it was legal. Starting to see any corollaries here? So... What happened was, since we had to transport this, if you think about it, if I need enough beer to supply a bar room, that's a lot of beer, it's a lot of weight, it's a lot of bottles, it's a lot of stuff that can break, and it's a, it's a, a, a lot larger of something I have to transport, and therefore a greater opportunity for the revenuers to catch me. But if I distill what I'm fermenting, 
first of all, I can actually get there faster. It seems like you can't because it's a multi-step process. But I'm making gin, vodka, moonshine, you know, instead of some kind of an aged whiskey. Then I could have a fermenter running, and I can as soon as I that one's about ready for still, I can start fermenting another batch, and I can just keep rolling it. And as soon as it comes out of the still, probably the second or third time, depending on what I'm doing, it's ready to go. And I can distill, you know, back then, let's say, distill it up to about 150 proof. And uh, then I can transport it at that higher proof. And I can let the guy running the speakeasy water it down to something more, you know, like 80 to 100 proof. And therefore, I'm transporting less. I'm getting it done faster. I have less concerns about sanitation. I'm not going to get shitty, bad at beer. Now, I'm not saying people didn't make beer during Prohibition. But what I'm saying is the people that made beer during Prohibition made it for their household or their brother. The people that were making money, making liquor to move were distilling. And your government got involved by doing what? Poisoning the alcohol to give it a bad name and saying that it was the way that they were making it. It's going to make you go blind and shit like that. No, it was our government poisoning it. Just like in the 1980s when I was in high school, I remember the big you know, war on drugs speeches starting up and stuff like that. And I remember people coming in, guest lecturers and stuff like that, and saying, you know... They finally were honest. Marijuana won't kill you, but it could. Come again? Now I'm paying attention. My marijuana could kill me? He's like, yeah, you might meet somebody trying to push some dope on you, and you say, well, it could hurt me. or whatever. And then you go big old drag and blow the smoke out and say, see, it didn't hurt me at all. But to fight the drug war, what the government's doing now is they're spraying herbicides on the marijuana to kill it. Well, if they spray it and it gets harvested before it dies, you could be smoking that, and that could be very dangerous. So you mean the government is willfully poisoning the drug supply to kill people and make people sick, and then using that as a weapon of fear just like, oh, all over again? And this is reality. And, and this is what I'll say. If you're a person that thinks alcohol should be illegal and cannabis should be illegal, I don't agree with you, but at least you're consistent. If you're a person that goes down to the liquor store on Friday night, picks up a bottle of Jack, pours yourself a few Jack and Cokes to end the evening, which I have no problem with, but then say, Damn, that marijuana's bad stuff. Um, the guy smoking marijuana is less likely to blow his liver up and kill himself either short or long term than you are. And there is a lot of value to be derived from cannabis as a medicine. And I'm not saying that everywhere that everybody wants cannabis legal, it's just so it can be a medicine. I'm saying it can get you high and it can be a medicine. And... I think that we've been so lied to about this for so long that the reason everybody says it's bad and it's evil is simply because it's illegal. And I just wanted to take this opportunity right now to remind you that just because something's illegal doesn't make it immoral. And just because something's legal does not make it moral. And I think that's something we need to come to terms with because I've had this discussion with diehard law enforcement officers who, you know, they will enforce the drug laws and they will write somebody up for marijuana. And if they catch somebody with enough of it, they'll, they'll run them in on a felony for dealing and distribution. And, and when we discuss the whole thing and compare it to alcohol and they, they run out of excuses. When they start saying it's so much stronger now, I'm like, you can go buy Everclear and you can kill people. You know, dozens of people every day dying of alcohol poisoning. You have none dying of marijuana. And when we finally run that out, you know what they say? But it's illegal. And I usually say, you know what? You just made my point for me. You actually can't morally defend this. All you can do is fall back to what the state says. And I would just point out that throughout history, many things that the state have said were okay were not okay. 
And many things that the state said were not okay were not only okay, but they were right and just. And I don't make marijuana cannabis my number one political issue. It's really not. But to me, there is nothing that tells the story about the overreach of the state more so than saying, I will lock you up and put you in a cage with people that will rape you because you possessed, grew, or smoked a plant. And if you think that's okay, maybe you need to smoke that plant because you might as well be high since you ain't thinking clearly anyway. On the Harbor Freight thing, I agree with everything this gentleman said. I just want to add another guy called in. I decided not to dogpile the Harbor Freight thing. But his one caveat with Harbor Freight was he said, if it lifts or holds up something heavy that I'm going to go underneath, I won't buy it from Harbor Freight like jack stands and stuff like that. Um, I think that's probably good advice. I don't know if it's necessary, but it's not worth the risk to something that could crush you with cheap steel. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, I got another one here. This one is on sneaky permaculture. Uh, hey, Jack, this is Mike in Southwest Virginia. I wanted to know your top ten sneaky permaculture plants. Uh, for background, uh, we have a traditional yard and uh, slowly making it over and trying to introduce some more useful, uh, multi, multiply useful plants um, that will look pretty for my wife, but I can kind of point out, hey, we can use the, uh, you know, berries off of this bush and et cetera, but hopefully ones that as planted will make nicer flowers or et cetera, so it makes it a little easier for me to justify them, uh, justify planting them. Uh, I'm in Zone 6 in the uh, mountains of uh, southwest Virginia. Thanks. Well, this is another one that I am going to refer you to a show that's actually very recent. Um, in this case, episode 1942, the show was called Edible Ornamentals, Growing Food in Plain Sight, Even in an HOA. Um, it was a great show. I got a lot of really great feedback on it. It talks about a lot of things, not just the plants, but the concept of pattern recognition and the key to growing permaculture in places where people don't want it or blue hairs roam in the HOA committees and or you know city ordinances and anything like that or reluctant spouses is to follow the patterns that people expect to see so if all of the houses on the street have a little you know a little peninsula landscape with posies in it and maybe a little round thing around the mailbox and one tree with a you know kind of a thing around that and then eld back around the side that you build that you build that hardscape so to speak it's really not a hardscape because unless you're doing concrete uh, or some sort of blocks but you know you're cutting in in other words you're cutting the pattern in and then plant the pattern with edibles or medicinals that are attractive that fit the pattern. And if you do that, nobody cares. Okay. Now, I will honor your request for plants because I have a list right here. And uh, here's the, the plants that I gave away there, and I think these are all great. Uh, herbs, especially purple basil, rainbow chard, red beets, Sweet potato is ground cover. Just don't do the ornamental sweet potato. Use real sweet potatoes. Uh, calendula, nasturtium, ornamental hot peppers, various lettuces. You can use plain old lettuces, but if you have 20 different versions of lettuce planted and mixed up, it looks actually very ornamental. Scarlet runner beans, kale. Um, and let me throw out a little shout here. There's a plant called a tree collard, which is basically tree kale. Um, and there's... Um, a guy that just sent me three tree collard plants, and he's got a website he sells these things at. 
His website is Project Tree Collar, and I think he's only got two varieties available right now because they go to seed during the spring and they stop growing a lot of vegetation. But they're actually a really cool-looking plant that you could grow uh, into these systems uh, as well. So I'll put a link to Project ProjectTreeCollar.org in the show notes today, and that's something that you might want to t check out. Uh, moving into perennials. Um, dwarf pomegranate and dwarf peach are two great dwarf trees that you can fit into systems without them being over, you know, overriding huge trees. Blueberries, fajoa, also known as pineapple guava, if you're in the right USDA zone for it. Figs are just awesome looking plants, and you know, no one's going to have a problem with a fig tree. Chives as part of your intermix and your kind of garden planting stuff. Daylilies, uh, both the flowers and the tubers are edible, and they're both great. Roses, especially large hip variety roses, Nanking or Hanson cherries, and dwarf mulberry. And keep dwarf mulberry pruned way back. So Mora alba isai is the dwarf mulberry, and you can pretty much prune that to any size or shape. You can put it up against a fence and treat it like grapevines. You can make that tree look like anything you want, and it's very, very, very productive and very, very, very hardy. So those are the, the, the ones that I gave away this January when I was on this subject. Again, the full episode is episode 1942, published in January. Uh, I have links to a lot of different resources as well for that. And uh, I, I think that the best thing you can do in your circumstances is go listen to that whole episode. But there's a good list of stuff for you. And again, one of my favorites is chard, rainbow chard. Um, you just all the different yellow, pink, red, green. Uh, that stuff just looks dynamite in any kind of a landscape setting. And you can just keep cutting your outer leaves, and it just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back over and over again. That's a really great green to uh, to look at. And again, check out Tree Collar, uh, Project Tree Collar org. And uh, I tell you what, right out of our community, and uh, really great idea. And once you have a few, you can keep making your own clones of that if you want to do a lot of it. Uh, with that, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I have got a question about my pond. About two years ago, most of my fish went belly up. They all died, and uh, neighbors told me that the pond had turned. I don't know if exactly what that means or how to prevent it in the future. That was about two years ago. The fish population is starting to come back up, and I was just wanting to hear your take on that. And a secondary question about my pond is my ducks do not like the pond. They will avoid it at all costs. I know they have – I know there's turtles in the pond. I don't know if maybe they're nipping at their feet or something. But anyway, if I get your take on that, I'd appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Um, I really can't speak to ducks that don't like a pond other than that it could be the turtles. Turtles will definitely kill ducks, and larger turtles or even large amounts of you know relatively small turtles, we're talking like you know soup bowl-sized turtles, will grab adult ducks and weigh them down and, 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 and kill them. And my view is when it comes to farm ponds and stock tanks and stuff like that, that turtles should be met in the head with a 22 or something similar. Or you can trap turtles as well and remove them that way if you want to live trap them and move them out. But the population needs to be controlled, if not snuffed out. That they're just not a good thing in that ecosystem long term, especially if you want to have waterfowl. And uh, I've had exactly one turtle move into my pond, and eventually I caught him with a with a actually 22 pellet rifle and put a hole in his head. And uh, I just 
would not, especially the smaller the pond, the more this is true, the more they'll overpopulate, and the more damage that they'll do. Um, I don't have anything against turtles as a whole. There's just the right place for the right creature, and your farm stock tank is not one of them. Now, I don't know how big your pond is, and I don't know what time of year this happened. Um, let's start out with the concept of the pond turned over. There's a lot of people that use that word, and I'm going to quote the movie. I still haven't watched it. You guys keep telling me I, I need to, to watch. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Okay, So turnover is not a bad thing. Turnover is why we have life on Earth. And it has to do with something that water does that nothing else on our planet does. And that's it can become both denser and lighter as it gets colder with a crossover point at 39 degrees. And what I mean by that, if you've ever been in deep water and you start swimming deeper, you get colder and colder and colder water. The surface temperature will be warmer than it goes down because cold sinks, just like air, right to 39 degrees. At 39 degrees, you reach a crossover point where water actually starts to become less dense, and this is why ice floats. Because ice, 32 degrees or colder, is less dense than all the, all the liquid water. So water freezes from the top down. Now, I want you to think about if this didn't happen, what it would mean for our planet. We would be planet snowball. O over our history, the oceans would have froze from the bottom up, the planet would have become a giant snowball, and even it, where we're at from the sun, it probably would have never defrosted. It is only the fact that water behaves this way that makes lakes not freeze from the bottom up and kill everything every year, even if we didn't go into a perpetual snowball state. Okay? So obviously this is not a bad thing for life. So what happens with turnover? Turnover is when in the spring and the fall uh, we get this, this turnover state. And the easiest way to understand turnover is to start out with when we don't have turnover. So we have basically four things in ponds in temperate climates. We have summer stratification, fall turnover, winter stratification, and spring turnover. So let's start out with what stratification is. Stratification is turnover's happened, it's done, and it's not cold enough for water to be colder than 39 degrees anymore, and it's not cold enough for water to freeze anymore. So the water becomes layered. The hottest water's at the surface temperature and the coldest water's at the bottom. And there's a thermocline that comes into large enough bodies of water that we won't get into today. But below thermocline, generally you have low oxygen levels. So the fish stay out of there. They stay above or right at the thermocline level in larger bodies of water. But that water's stratified. It becomes very still. Unless there's some other force, wind, a current through it, something becomes very, very still, and it becomes very, very stable. And then we move into fall, and we get into a point where the water begins to cool at the surface. Well, what happens when the water at the surface begins to cool? It begins to sink, and it begins to turn over. And then when we get into winter, we get into a point where we reach a stability again. Maybe we get an ice layer on the surface, and now we're at a point where we've stratified in winter. And then we get into spring, and we get a melt of the ice. The water begins to warm up, and that water that's, that then turns over again because of differences in the density. So that's when a pond turns Now, because of this, if there's a lot of crap in the water or something like that, a lot of times you'll see a lot of water like look very turbid. Very, it won't be very clear. That's why a lot of times you see in the spring your big lakes will be, they'll call the water stained, 
And then by, by summertime, the water will be clear. It's this turnover that's causing this to happen. So people see this, and they call it the turn. They say the pond turned, and that meant that that's why the fish died. Well, the fish died most likely due to either, depending on whether it happened in the spring or the fall. If it happened in the spring, it was probably an algal bloom, and the fine particles of algae get into the fish's gills, and they can't get oxygen. basically clogs the works up. If it was in the fall, it was probably some other reason for low oxygen, i.e. a heavy algal bloom in the spring that settled and that didn't really kill your fish in the spring. And then when it turned in the fall, it stirred all of that up and it reduced the oxygen in, in the pond. It could also be some type, type of spike in temperature. I don't know because you didn't tell me when it happened, how it happened, what the water looked like. But the turnover itself is not the problem. The turnover is physics of, 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 of freshwater aquatic systems, okay? Well, I think my freaking freshwater ecology teacher uh, from high school would be proud of me today. Um, I did learn something in high school, son of a bitch. In the course that I chose to take because I wanted to, not they made me take. Anyway, um, so that, that is actually how I know this. Uh, from Mr. Bowman in freshwater ecology, my senior year of high school, one of the few... Some of the few uh, Classes I actually took my senior year. I spent most of my senior year in senior lounge sleeping because I had so few classes to take. Uh, but I liked the idea of that one, so I took that one. See, you learn when you like stuff. Anyway, so what is the best solution for you? The best solution is high oxygen levels in your pond. This will reduce algal blooms. Uh, the agitation will actually keep the water moving during the stratification period because it might have had nothing to do with the turn. It might have been in your summer stratification while the water was stagnant and not moving that you had this problem. I don't know. Um, I've been researching this myself, and I have to say I have not purchased this product yet uh, for my small pond, but it's the one, and I don't, the other thing you didn't tell me is how big your pond is. Um, so this will handle supposedly up to a one-acre pond. It's very well-reviewed on, um, on Amazon. However, it only has 22 reviews, but it's not a product that a lot of people would buy. Um, Out of those 22 reviews, 86% are five-star, uh, four-star represents 9%, and then there's no threes and no twos, and then there's a few one-star reviews, and most people are bitching about things like, I didn't like the way it was shipped, or you know, it didn't arrive on time, or something like that. That really doesn't review the product. Um, it is expensive. It's almost 700 bucks. That's why I haven't ordered it yet. It's called the Air Pro Pond Aerator Kit by Living Water. And it basically uses a quarter horsepower air compressor. It's got a hundred feet of line, sinking line, and a piece that sits on the bottom that's like a massive air stone, and it pumps a massive amount of air into your pond. Uh, the, the, the key here, then, is you would need to get power to the pond. Other options would include windmill-style aerators and things like that, and that might be worth looking into as well. Um, if I do this, what I'm going to probably do because the circuit that, that I can actually run power down there with is the same one that's running my pool, I'll probably run the pool during the day and the pond aerator for you know eight hours at night while the pool shuts off on timers so that I'm not trying to run my you know three-quarter horsepower freaking pool pump, my electric fence, and this quarter-horsepower compressor. That'll also have the compressor running at the coolest time of day, so less chance of overheating. One of the people said that he has a small fan rigged up to his timer on the reviews, and he has it basically in, in a case, the fan blowing air through it to keep the compressor cold, but keep the compressor out of the elements and running it 12 hours a day. I, I think running this eight hours a day on a small pond like mine would be plenty. 
So that's the product I'm going to recommend you check out if you can get power there. If not, then you probably want to look at something like a windmill, a wind-based aerator or some type of solar aerator or something like that, though they, neither will probably give you the level of oxygen that this thing will. Again, I've researched a bunch of stuff. I've researched solutions that are several thousand dollars and some that are a couple hundred dollars. And I've kind of settled on this one as being the best bang for your buck that actually does what it's supposed to do. Okay. Um, another option that you might look at, again, I don't know how big this pond is, how old it is, Ponds go through secession, just like forests do, and the, the, the eventual place that a pond ends up is a field. Uh, aquatic systems grow topsoil faster than any other system, and that means that ponds over time actually fill up, and they get shallower and shallower. They go through stages of emergent vegetation, floating vegetation, etc. Okay? Now, if this is a very old pond, there might be an awful thick layer of anaerobic sediment in there and your pond actually might have a lot less water than you think it does because as that builds up your volume of water of course goes down it might be worth getting a local contractor who specializes in pond maintenance to come in and basically dredge the pond out I'm not saying that's necessary. There's no way I could possibly know without looking at it and analyzing it or what have you. If there's any records, sometimes ponds are just guy takes a backhoe or an excavator or a dozer and pushes a bowl in the land and you get a pond. Sometimes it's actually done by a company that draws up specs on it. And a lot of times if they do that, if those are still around, you'll have the depth, the maximum depth and where it is in the pond. If you take a small boat or something and go out and lower a line or use a, a depth gauge or something and figure out what that depth is, and let's say it said the maximum depth in your pond was 11 feet, and now the maximum depth in your, depth in your pond is like 6 feet, think about the metric shit ton of material that has settled in that pond and how much anaerobic nastiness can be down there. Going in and dredging that out, and you set it somewhere and spread it out and let it go aerobic. You don't use it as a fertility aid right away, but once it, you, you know, give it a few weeks and a couple turns with a, like a, a front end loader, and then you use that as an incredible fertility uh, bump. But you don't want to use it until it's a chance to lose that anaerobic state that it's in. But that'll a lot of times really rehab a pond. Sometimes a pond needs to be pumped down a great deal to do this. It all depends on the size, the depth, the structure, etc. So that's another option. Um, and the only other real option is if there's some source of moving water where you can create a path for water to come in and a path for water to go out. Uh, I've seen that done where somebody will put an overflow in and then they'll take a pipe and they'll run a pipe underground from, let's say, a spring or a stream, and they'll run a very just a slow trickle of water in, and then you have a slow trickle of water out. And, I mean, it could be as, as slow as, you know, uh, let's say a gallon a minute even will have a, a marked impact on the quality of water. But if you can run even, let's say, you know, 10 gallons a minute of flow, which isn't much, um, especially if you locate them kind of, the you know, catty corner from each other, you can have a lot of effect with that, with that continuous you know, change of water. Especially if the water coming in is what? And it probably is if it's coming from a moving source. Colder than the, the water on the surface of the pond. Because when the cold water comes in, it's going to sink down and displace water and force the warmest water out of the pond. Another good practice you can do, this, I don't know if this really helps you now, If you get a contractor to come in and do some dredging or some work, you might be able to make this happen. But when you're installing ponds, what everybody does because it's easy is they make a big bowl. 
If you make ponds where you have like a shallow zone and a deep zone, you get a lot more turning over from uh, temperature fluctuations. And that keeps the water from being less stratified, less stagnant. Because again, most of the time when you have die-offs in ponds, they happen in the summer during stratification, not during turnover. If they do happen during turnover, they happen because you have an algal bloom, and it's that fine algae. I fought it myself this year and ended up having to knock it down. But it's that fine algae that gets in the gills. and it, it, it ro- There's oxygen in the water, but the fish can't get it. It's like, you know, there's oxygen in the room, but if somebody puts a garbage bag over your head and you can't tear it off, eventually you're going to die. And that's what's happening to the fish. It's like somebody put a garbage bag over their gills. So hopefully that helps you. Hopefully it gives you some ideas. And again, the product is called the Air, Air Pond Pond Aerator Kit by Living Water. It's like 700 bucks, free shipping, Amazon, link in the show notes, all that good stuff. With that, I want to talk to you about our Amazon item of the day today. I decided to bring back an Encore item once again. Um, I've reached a point now where I can't be coming up with five new products a week every week. So I try to bring back products that I think, you know, that's the right time of the year or they have a lot of value or they've done well with the audience and the audience has given me good feedback on them. This one's kind of all of that. Um, It's my favorite pellet gun other than the Benjamin 392, which it's only my favorite. That one's only my favorite because of nostalgia. This is my favorite modern pellet gun. It's made by Crossman. It's called the Nitro Venom uh, pellet gun. It comes in 177 and 22 caliber. And I'll tell you why I like it. It's about 150 bucks. And I agree with a commenter who, who said the last time that I put this up that it is, the, it is the best bang for your buck under $500. Like to do better, you have to be up in the $500 range. I don't know if it's quite that much, but it's damn close. I mean, it is an incredible... Uh, value at about $150. It is hard hitting. I mean, the 177 caliber one, and this is not with PBA, the special lightweight, super fast ammo. Regular old pellets, a thousand feet per second from a 177, and 800 feet per second from a 22. There are guns that shoot harder, but that's for what you're going to do with a pellet gun. That's plenty. Um, it is a bit heavy. It's not really for your younger shooters. This is an adult air rifle, though most teenagers would have no problem shooting it well. Because it's a nitro, 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 blah, 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 nitro piston, unlike the old-style pistons, it actually breaks in faster. This is something you need to know about these brake-action-style piston-driven air rifles. They have a break-in period, and they'll shoot a little accurate, then not so accurate, and, a little, and you think, well, it's not a very good gun. Most of them need to be fired about a 1,000 rounds to really break that, that, that piston in of the standard pistons. Nitros generally will settle in at about 500. Uh, this one will settle in, and I've looked at plenty of reviews on it that people agree with my assessment, about 300 shots. And the way that I break one in is I just get it zeroed half-ass, because I'm not going to sit there and fiddle with it when I know I'm in the break-in period. I'll set some kind of you know, steel target or something way out by the back fence, and I put 100 pellets in a little dish. I just set it out like on my grill. And whenever I walk outside, I'll take the gun with me and fire 25, 50 shots at that, at that plate. And if I can't hit it there, it's not the gun's fault, it's mine. And uh, when that dish is empty, I'll fill it back up, another 100 pellets. When I get through the dish three times, then I'll set down, I'll put it on a sandbag, put it out at 20 yards, and I'll absolutely dead on zero it and start hunting for the best pellet for it. That's the best practice for any of you guys. So I wanted to talk about this today, not just because that's the item of the day, but because I know some of you probably have bought piston guns, and maybe there's one sitting in a closet somewhere that you've been unhappy with, 
And if you haven't gone through that break-in period with it, you know, it's good practice. Set up a, you know, a six or eight inch piece of steel, put it 50 yards away. You should be able to hit it with a pellet gun at that range and practice your offhand shooting until you run out of three to 500 pellets. Then put it back on the sandbag. You might totally change your opinion about the gun you've paid good money for that's sitting up collecting dust right now. Remember, you can always support us when you do your shopping online at tspaz.com, where you'll find a link over to Amazon, and you'll find a link to the item of the day, or actually all the reviews of the item of the day, tspaz.com. And more cool stuff's coming to tspaz soon, I promise you. Anyway, um, with that, let's talk about the song of the day. Um, this one caught me by surprise, because I had never heard it, and I'm not a huge fan of the artist, though I really like this song. It's by Pink. And yeah, you haven't heard Pink on the Survival Podcast before. Though Pink's all right, I guess, in some ways. Um, it's called I Have Seen the Rain. And it's, it's really a unique song. Here's what John Adams has for us on this. It says, This song was a bonus track recorded with her father, Jim Moore, who wrote the song while serving in Vietnam. The song contains a good intro explanation from Pink as well. In 2006, most Vietnam vets were in their late 50s and 60s. Now, 11 years later, this is a generation beginning to fade into history. Uh, here's what John has to say further about it, on a personal note. When I first heard this song, I remembered a Vietnam vet I worked with named Bill in 1989. Bill was kind of a crazy biker, alcoholic type with a slew of ex-wives. For whatever reason, Bill took a liking to me. And we would talk and visit when things were slow in the store. He never went into too much detail about his experience in Vietnam. He would just say it was shit no one should go through. One day I could tell Bill was not doing too well emotionally, and after some prying he told me of his previous evening activities that painted a horrific snapshot in my head of what the guy went through. The night before, Bill found an old shoebox of photos and letters from Vietnam. In it he found a picture of himself standing in a pile of dead bodies, proudly grinning like a Cheshire cat. He was sickened by the photo and by the thought of who he once was. He said he then burned the box because he never wanted to see it again. Even through my 19-year-old self, I had little to offer in advice. I think it helped him to talk about it. And I think he enjoyed visiting with a relatively innocent 19-year-old, especially compared to the 19-year-olds who served in Vietnam. <sighs> yeah. Um... I still struggle with the change in how veterans come home from war. There was plenty of hell in World War II and plenty of hell in Korea. And the, the, the narrative has always been that the men that came back from World War II came back as heroes and victors, and therefore they were able to adapt better to you know the, the reality of what they had been through. Because the men from World War II largely did well. You, you know, there, I'm sure there was, it was probably talked about less, but we didn't have anywhere near the number of people from World War II that ended up being homeless and on drugs and laying in gutters. We just didn't. Or the number of suicides that we did from Vietnam. But, you, I mean, you can make that argument that it was the greatest generation. They won the war against the Nazis in Imperial Japan, that their, their country welcomed, welcomed them with ticker tape parades and, and, and people were, were, you know, happy to see them come home. And, you know, the Korean War vets were not treated with the animosity that the Vietnam vets were, especially toward the end of the Vietnam War. And I refuse to call it a conflict. A war is a war, whether it's declared or not. Um, yeah, if you can call the drug war the war on drugs, you can call Vietnam a freaking war. Just 
pisses me off. Anyway, the Korean War vets that came home came home and were forgotten. The, the United States didn't want to think about what happened in Korea. We, we basically were fought to a standstill. And it was, it was really mostly us, but it was the entire UN damn near, at least our side of it, fought to a standstill by this tiny nation backed up by the Chinese. And that's why it's called the Forgotten War. Everybody just kind of forgot about it and went back. But the Korean War vets, I'm sure there were some, because I know I'm going to hear from somebody, my uncle or whatever, but not like Vietnam. I remember as a young man, I'm talking about my early teens here, so we're talking mid-80s, with Vietnam vets that seemed to be all around me. All of my uncles were friends with Vietnam vets. My father was a Vietnam vet. Um, and just noticing the contrast between them and people like my grandfather and my great-uncle that were World War II vets. And um, a friend of my, my uncle's who was our butcher, he was a Korean War vet. And I remember he was so much older than the Vietnam vets one day, I was talking to him, and we were making sausage. He was teaching me how the sausage thing worked. And he, he, he said, you know, during the war. And I said, oh, World War II? He said, no, Korea. And I realized at that point I'd never even considered it. That's how forgotten it was. Yet he went on and had a pretty good life. And I know some Vietnam vets have gone on and had pretty good lives. But it was like, demor it was like a demarcation point. Vietnam all the way up till now. Now, the first Gulf War... It was so short that we didn't seem to have a lot of really problematic things going on with our veterans. Physically, we did with Gulf War Syndrome. If you don't think that's real, you just have your head up your ass. I'm sorry. But once we went into Iraq the second time and Afghanistan and all of this ongoing war where guys are in combat for, for long periods of time, they're coming home with the same problems those people from Vietnam came home with. And I don't think this is the whole thing. But I think I understand why, to a degree, that the earlier generations didn't have as much problem reassimilating. It has to do with how long it takes to get home. There's a line in this song you're about to hear that says, I haven't been home in 30 years. Now, obviously, nobody went, not even the POWs went to Vietnam for 30 years. What does that mean? It means it's like it was 30 years ago that I left. What I came back to, I do not recognize. For two reasons. One, the speed things move at now, and have been since the 70s. Technology, innovation, I mean, I, I was blown away after being in Panama for two and a half years, basically, and Honduras for part of that. When I got home, like, how foreign everything was to me. I also was kind of blown away by how I just couldn't fit in with people because I'd been with men and women who did things a certain way all the time. And I think being overseas made that more the case because you're more in your own little tunnel box, right? If you're, if you're stationed in Fort Benning, well, yeah, you got your military buddies you're all around, but you're, you're in America. You get in your car, you drive down the road, you're at a, a convenience store or whatever. You're still interacting with civilians all the time. When you go overseas, you interact almost 100% with military personnel and their families. Very little with the locals, at least in Panama. The language barrier and, yeah. And I try to put myself in the place of, as much as I was changed by that experience, which wasn't a combat experience, if I'd been shot at multiple times for a year or two, 
and gotten the mindset that soldiers have. It's something, if you've never had it, it's hard to explain. And now you're coming home. How much different is that? Because the difference in Korea and World War II and World War I is men got on a ship. They were surrounded by men like them. They weren't shot at and they didn't have to shoot anybody and they knew they were done. And it took a long time for that ship to get home. And it, since there were so many of them, it took a long time for everything to finish up and for them to be out and home. Where now we have a guy, it's finally over. He decides he wants to get out of the military. He's been in and out of combat tours multiple times. His last tour is over. He gets on a plane. 48 to 72 hours later, he walks in the front door of his parents' house. Now, this makes me think of a movie. Um, the hell was that movie? I think it was Hamburger Hill. I'm, I'm not sure that's the one, but I think it was Hamburger Hill. There's a point in it where all the guys are talking about going home. And the one guy, I'm going to use the F word here, so if you don't like it, skip ahead a minute. But the one, because it's the only way to explain this. The one guy saying he had been home on leave, and he's sitting around the table at his mom's house, and he says, hey mom, pass the fucking potatoes. And it hit him right there. How different he was. Like he would never say that in front of his mother six months ago. And that's such a minor thing, but it, it, it made the point in such a specific way. And I think that's part of why we have 22 vets a day killing themselves. Because there's no smooth re-entry. There's no decompression time. You're on a freedom bird that you've dreamed of. And when you get home, it's not what you dreamed it would be. And everything seems different. And it's got to be more accelerated today. What the, what the world changes in a year today is unbelievable. That's what this song's all about. Hope you enjoy it. I hope it makes you think. Because there's times I get on my anti-war soapbox, and that's because I think if you're not anti-war, you have psychopathic tendencies, really. That doesn't mean that I don't appreciate and understand what our men and women go through in these environments. And we're not doing a good job of helping them when they come home. We need to do a better job. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. This next song is called I've Seen the Rain, and uh, it was written by my daddy, Mr. Jim Moore. Uh, he wrote it back in Vietnam about 40 years ago, and I grew up singing it with him at different Vietnam vet functions. That's how I learned how to harmonize and how to love an acoustic guitar. And the way that we recorded it, that was my dad's first time in a recording studio. And he always said singers don't really have to work too hard, and he changed his mind that day. Um, but we did it live, him and I in the vocal booth together, him playing and singing and me harmonizing. One take, straight through. Um, and it was really, really a good time. It was really special to be able to record a song with my dad. The first song I ever learned. Um, we hope you like it and we dedicate it to all the vets out there. I have seen the rain. I have felt 
tomorrow I don't know where I'm going I don't even know where I've been But I know I'd like to see them again Spend my days just searching Spend my nights in dreams Stop looking over my shoulder, baby I stopped wondering what it means Drop out, burn out, soldier home Oh, they said I should have been more Probably so if I hadn't been In that crazy damn Vietnam War I have seen the rain I survived the pain Stepping off of the plane Spend my day just searching Spend my nights in dreams Stop looking over my shoulder, baby I stopped wondering what it means Drop out, burn out, soldier hall Oh, they said I should have been more Probably so if I hadn't have been in that crazy damn Vietnam War We have seen the rain together We survived the pain forever Oh, it's good to be home again It's good to be with my friends Oh, it's good to be home again It's good To feel that way